Amen, amen. Thanks to the uh, youth band for leading us in worship today. Fantastic. So great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Well, uh, I want to say a uh, word of welcome to those of you who are new here, either in person or online. My name is Alex. So glad you're here with us. We've been expecting you to roll in here some Sunday morning. Uh, what we're all about here at Chatham Church is really simple. Catching people to God, to each other, so together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things, either in person or online. Uh, a little bit of business before we jump into what we're talking about today. Um, back in the end of 2019, start of 2020, our elders approved a sabbatical policy. That is, if you've been working here for seven years or longer, you could sort of take a, 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 some time away, paid time away to refresh, renew, and restore. So I was slated for sabbatical summer 2020. And anyone remember what happened in 2020? Something happened, spring 2020, <laughs> kind of upended those plans. You know, a once in a century global pandemic. So I'm like, I'm not taking a sabbatical uh, during the summer of 2020, but by God's grace, we have steered through a crazy global pandemic. We're in the building here in North Chatham. The Lord's doing good things at both campuses and online, and it's time. So this summer, uh, I'll be taking a seven-week sabbatical starting on June 14th. Uh, June 14th, which I believe is 10 years and one day since I started here at Chatham Community Church. So uh, yeah, just really... It has been just a great, a great run. Uh, and the goal of that time away, it'll be seven weeks to refresh, renew, restore, play, do some personal work on myself. For seven weeks, I won't look at email. For seven weeks, it's like the promised land. It's wonderful. No meetings. Uh, my family and I will be going to church somewhere else because I'm going to come here on Sunday mornings. I'm going to get hooked into work. So we're going to be doing everything we can to unplug and uh, come back refreshed and ready to seek the Lord for whatever the next season looks like here together. Uh, we have lined up a spectacular group of people for the, the week. Weeks I'm away, the Sundays I'm away, uh, just some great local friends, partners, pastors. And what we said to them is bring your best material. So you're going to get seven weeks of the greatest hits of some fantastic people here on Sunday morning. So I'm so grateful for those folks, so grateful for the staff team, Jaime, Michelle, the elders who are going to be filling in and helping carry some of the load. I'll be back in mid-August uh, to help us get ready for fall kickoff and back to school year and all that kind of stuff. So still got a few weeks, June 14th, still a few weeks away, but wanted to give people a heads up about it. And uh, again, so very grateful for this church, for what the Lord's done uh, here in our midst. And uh, I look forward to seeing what the Lord does uh, on the other side of it. So thanks so much. Uh, this is week one of a brand new series called Integrated, Faith and Life Together. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, looking at the book of James and asking the question about our religious practice, so what? Some time ago, I was doing one of my favorite things. I had lunch with a skeptic. Love those people. And they just started coming to church. He was sort of skeptical about God, about faith, about church, about religious practice. And his question was, what difference is this making in the world? One of the things I love about the book of James is it is relentless about saying faith makes a difference in the world. Like in our community, in ourselves. James wants nothing to do with a religious practice that stays in a bubble or a vacuum, that only stays, it's like anything that, it, it, like, listen, if church for you is like, like Las Vegas, what happens there stays there, James is going to bother you. And if you've been a church person for a long time and you're open to it, James is going to push us to make sure that our faith is actually working itself out in concrete, practical deeds. And if you're here this morning and you're one of those religious faith church skeptics, so glad you're here. This is a great series to be a part of this. My prayer, my hope is as you hear us wrestle with this text and the commands of the scripture to faith actually being integrated, uh, Chatham serves as a great example of how we're trying to do our best to make sure that faith actually lives itself out in practical, specific, concrete ways. Some quick background on the book of James, just as we get started on it. First, James was likely written by the brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
I had a speaker, one of my favorite speakers says that the, the faith of James, Jesus's brother, is one of the greatest sort of testimonies to the fact that Jesus actually was resurrected from the dead. Because here's a question, how many of, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was the savior of the world? What would it take for you to believe your sibling was sent by God uniquely to save the world? It would take a lot for me to believe my younger brother was sent to save the world. But James had that experience. He had a very significant experience with Jesus. He was a key leader in the, uh, the early church. It was likely written about 44 AD and James is martyred, uh, maybe about 15, 20 years after that. James is written as a general letter to the churches in general. He's not dealing with a specific church with specific problems, but he is uh, very, very Jewish. He's, a, he's, he's deeply devout Jew and he's very interested in helping particularly his Jewish readers. He references a lot of the Old Testament and just assumes that his Jewish readers know that Old Testament and are familiar with this. He's very Jewish in his sort of approach. He's very practical. He's in the kind of the long line of wisdom literature. There's a lot of echoes of Proverbs and James steals a lot from his brother's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he like, he's referencing, echoing the Sermon on the Mount all the time. It's one of his favorite, uh, clearly one of his favorite teachings of his brother. And so he, uh, he, he lists that and kind of quotes it and references it all throughout the book. So it's a short letter, but it's got a lot of packs a punch. And we're excited about sort of walking through this over the next several weeks. And uh, my prayer, my hope is that uh, for all of us, this helps all of us to connect the dots between what we're doing on Sunday mornings, the song we sing, the scriptures we look at, and what it means to really actually live it out in a very practical, concrete way. We're going to be at James 1, starting in verse 1. So you got a Bible, turn with me there. If not, it'll be on the screens here or on the uh, screen there in front of you in just a bit. Uh, we, started, we said that James is going to be very practical and relentless in his practicality. It starts from the very, very beginning. James 1, starting in verse 1, says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, that's a very Jewish greeting because there were 12 brothers of 12 tribes of Israel, and they were like 12 states within the nation of Israel. 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, let's take it from the top. Did you see this? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. How many of you faced any trial before? How many of you, any trial? For how many of you was joy and jubilation, your first response? Do this for me, do this for me. Fill in this blank. I consider it pure blank whenever I face trials of many kinds. Remember, we're in a church, so keep it like PG-13, right? Okay. Trials. This past week, I had a kid test positive for COVID on Sunday, right? So we're like in general lockdown, hunker mode. I'm masked. I'm doing things over Zoom. It takes me all of two days before I am done. I am so like twitchy. I am, I, this is a very, very light little momentary thing, right? But I have some choice words for my experience of being like kind of quasi lockdown again. I'm like, I'm so done with this. Oh, it took me two days. Not my natural response. Right? Our natural response when we have trials is any number of other things, right? Annoyance, frustration, fear, anxiety, worry, roll up our sleeves, go for a fight. James here calls us to be people or invites us to the privilege of calling trials a blessing, a gift, a joy. Now, it's important to remember, to think about this, how, how, how James talks about this. It's important because for, for the because here behind this, right? It's important because whenever you face trials of many kinds, you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. Now, it's important to remember that James isn't 
I'm sorry. I'm a little bit lost. I'm a little bit lost in my notes. My, my notes got a little lost. Let me, uh, let me back up and tell us back. Ah, here we go. Where are we? There we go. All right. So we're considering a pure joy. We face trials of many kinds. Now, it's important to remember. Am I doing this? This? Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> now, it's important to remember where James is in life. Like, he's going to get martyred in just a few, maybe a few decades, but the, the persecution is increasing. There's challenges. He's not sitting in, like, a comfortable sort of, like, ivory tower. He's not sort of, uh, uh, like, uh, immune from the challenges of the world. And he cares about the churches he's writing to, and they're facing persecution, they're dealing with challenges. And James doesn't start warm and fuzzy. He doesn't start with like, I'm so sorry, it's so hard. He says, I want you to have a totally different mindset about the trials you're going to experience because we're all going to experience trials. And the word that James uses for trials is like garden variety of trials, any kind of trials, like all trials, any sort of opposition or challenges. Here's why James is so adamant that, we, that people get the right mindset around trials because he's seen what I've seen. And that is this, the trials don't dictate who you become. God's grace and how you process the trials. That's what dictates who you become. Trials themselves do not dictate who you become. God's grace and the evidence of God's grace, and then your experience of processing the trials within the context of God's grace, that's what dictates who we become. I meet with people all the time who are dealing with all kinds of challenges, marriage challenges, extended family challenges, jobs, careers, medical stuff. And, and, and there's a spectrum of how people respond. On one of the spectrum, people are like crying out to God. They're reading scripture like never before, praying like never before. They're like listening to worship music. They never used to do that. Like well, everywhere, everywhere they go and they're like inviting friends. They're asking people to pray for me, help me to work through this. I've seen people who just dig deep into their faith. And then at the same time, I can, I, an hour later, I can sit down with another person going through the exact same trial. And they're like, I'm too busy for God. I'm too busy. I got things to do. I got stuff going on. And maybe I'm even angry at God. I'm frustrated at God because he's not coming through. But I only got time to think about that. I got so much going on, my friends. Here's a question for you. Do you think of faith as something that you're too swamped for when trials come? Or is faith the thing that's going to get you through the swamp? Do you think of faith as something you can shelve when I don't got time for it? When things get too hard or too busy, I'm a, I don't have time for the God thing. don't have time to engage with that. I've got to take care of this situation. I am swamped either emotionally, with anxiety, or with the stuff to do. Do you think of faith as something that can easily get swamped in your life? Or is faith the thing that's going to get you through the swamp, the challenges, the trials, the difficulties? That's the opportunity. That's the invitation. James. He says, James here wants his people to have a grid, right? Here's God's grace coming at you. It's available. I want you to sort of enter into those trials with the expectation that something good will come out of it. And it's important to see the because, right? That's where I was going when I got lost. It's important to see what the because is here for, right? Consider pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking Anything. See, what do we know? What do we think we know about trials? Trials threaten us, threaten to take something away, threaten to cost us time, effort, energies, threaten to take relationships away, threaten to take jobs away. There's all kinds of threats. But James says it's not, trials aren't about loss, but about gain. It leads to a perseverance, a, a, a maturation, a completeness to us. Now, for many of us on the face of it, we're not sure it's worth it. 
I want you to think back on a trial you've been through in the last year, year and a half, couple years, right? Think of the trial difficulty. Let's say you can go back in time and the angel of God appears to you and says, here's door number one. You go through the trial and you get perseverance on the other side. Or door number two, you skip the trial and don't get perseverance. I would choose, I think most of us choose, door number two. I'll skip the trial. I'll read a book about perseverance, okay? Does that like make up for it? Trials threaten us and threaten us and, and threaten to take away time, effort, energies, cost us pain. They're, at, the, at the least, they're inconvenient. And sometimes they're extremely threatening to things that we hold dear. And so one of the questions we have to ask, one of the challenges we have to ask is this. What speaks louder in your trials, the promises of God or the pain of your trials? What speaks louder in the face of trials? Promises of God or the pain of trials? Because one of those two is going to drown out the other one. One of those two is going to drown out the other one. One of these two going to drain off the other one. Either you're going to be hung up on and just fear and heal, hear nothing but the pain of the trials, the challenge, the threat of the trials, which I totally get. That's like, that's like my natural state. Or the promises of God are going to reframe those trials. Not that you don't feel pain. Obviously, we still feel pain. There's still challenges, still some anxiety, but we have a hope that there's something bigger than the trials that is dictated. It's at work in our lives that can even redeem the trials. The trials themselves are not, all, are not good. What God does in the midst of the trials, that's a miracle. The trials themselves, they're not good. I'm not, we're not calling evil good here. What James is saying is what God does, even with our worst experiences, is he can bring good out of it. Give us this thing, maturity, goodness, joy. So here's a question I have for you. How familiar are you with God's promises in scripture? Not like what you wish scripture said. I got a, lot of, I got a long list of those things. Here's the promises I wish God would give me. I'm talking about the actual promises of Scripture. Because if you're not fluent in the promises of Scripture, you're going to get swallowed up in trials and not count up your joy and not have the hope of the perseverance that comes of that. And so, my friends, if, if you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, I don't really know the promises of Scripture. I don't really, I've never looked at them. I've never taken them seriously. There's your summer homework assignment. I want you this summer, go through the Bible and just look for promises. Take a little highlighter. Green is a lovely color. And just highlight every promise that you can find in Scripture. Start right here at James 1. Right here James 1. If you let trials have their way in God's hands, it can produce this beautiful thing, perseverance, that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is a remarkable, ridiculous, beautiful promise. Highlight that one. And then spend the rest of the summer just sitting on the promises of God. Or go back to Jesus. Jesus makes most of the most audacious promises in the whole Bible. Sit with the promises of God and begin to let them soak into your heart and your mind. And then that will begin to reorient not only your relationship with God, but certainly your, especially your relationships with trials and the challenges that can come with them. See, James makes this promise that the rest of Scripture echoes. That our lives, conducted in the hands of Jesus, surrendered to the hands of Jesus, all things must bless us, be for your good, serve your good. Perseverance character, these things in us that God wants to shape in us. I like to work in coffee shops a lot. Uh, what I find is good coffee plus uncomfortable chairs plus ambient people noise is just a good space for creativity, just a nice environment for creativity. And, uh, and every so often I hear like a, a conversations around me. And some time ago I was in a coffee shop and there's a group of like five or six people behind me. And I don't know what they were talking about, but at one point one guy waxes very philosophical and he comes to this crescendo and he says, isn't this why we're on the planet to serve other people? And do you know what he got from his five people sitting around him? Crickets. <laughs> Awkward silence. No amens to that. 
And after some period of awkward silence, somewhere between five seconds and five hours of awkward silence, someone, someone said weakly, well, and maybe to be happy. Why are we here? Why are we on this earth? It's been a question people have wrestled with from the beginning of time. There's all kinds of answers to that question, right? Why are we here? What are we, here? What are we doing here? Uh, but the answer that the second person gave is pretty much the standard American answer. It's in the Constitution, for crying out loud. Pursuit of happiness, right? Pursuit of happiness. Now, the way that we've designed that, defined that as Americans has been a pursuit of happiness, as in, like, uh, as in uh, sort of making my life as happy as possible, which means that we spend a ton of time and energy minimizing and avoiding trials, don't we? You can't be happy if your life is full of trials, so what's the American way? Minimize and avoid trials as much as possible. Now, there's some good about that, right? There's medications that have come out of that, and therapists have come out of that, and all kinds of, some, a number of good things that have come out of that. But I think we need a more robust understanding of trials, especially as Jesus people. And I think what I want to invite us into is to think about it this way. Given that we live in a fallen world, given that all of us have disordered thoughts in our minds. Given that we're all disintegrated. That is, we're not fully integrated. That is, you want to be healthy and you want the chocolate cake. Right? That is, and you have all these warring thoughts in our hearts and our minds. And given that none of us is in line with who God made us to be and how God made us to be, maybe the only way that you and I fully grow up through some trials, through some formation that can only happen through hard experiences. Maybe some parts of our character, our hearts, our minds, our desires, maybe some of the ways that those things, those wrinkles get ironed out is only through trials. And if we make it our goal in life to minimize trials, if we try to minimize trials for ourselves, if we try to minimize trials for our children, if we overfunction as parents or as friends, well-intentioned though we might be, you and I might be robbing ourselves or the people we love of opportunities to iron out some character flaws that can only be ironed out through the forge and the pain of actual trials, allowing things to surface, allowing God to heal, restore, redeem. Not that every trial is good, but that God uses trials to integrate our character in a way that nothing else can. You can't read a book to do what trials can do in us and through us, if and as we surrender those trials and ourselves over to the Lord. See, James has got a bigger answer to the question, what's the good life? What is the good life? What are we here for? James says the good life starts with an integrated character. Mature, complete, not lacking anything, whole. Like this beautiful picture of wholeness and fruitfulness and fullness. It's a fruitful life starts with who we are, not how much stuff we have. The good life is about who you are, not who you know. The good life is about who you are, not what you've achieved or accomplished in life. The good life is about your character, not anything else. You can't make up for weak character. You can't make up for no character. You can't make up for these character flaws. See, lacking nothing in America means you get all the stuff. That's the American dream. Get all the stuff. Lacking nothing in James's context means you're just a wonderful human being. That no matter how much stuff you do or don't have, you're content. I stink at that. Contentedness, not my forte. Lacking nothing in our character means becoming a certain type of person, not having a certain type of status in culture or in the world around us or who likes us or who doesn't like us. See, my friends, here's why I think you should consider an alternative to the American picture of what the good life is because you know plenty of people who have all the stuff who are not happy. You know plenty of people who've got more stuff than you. Their marriages are a wreck. The relationship with their kids are a wreck. 
They're addicted to stuff, to substances. They've made all kinds of bad decisions. There's a train wreck behind them. You know all kinds of people who've got more stuff than you, and they are not actually happy. Because here's the deal, my friends. Character trumps happiness for the good life every single time. Character trumps stuff for the good life every single time. Who you're becoming is way more important than what you have or what you own. My friends, do you want real happiness, deep joy? Here's the thing, you were made for that. That's, that's, that's part of why that pursuit of happiness thing resonates so deeply with us. We want happiness. You were made for it. I've got great news for you. God is more committed to your eternal joy than you are. God is so committed to your eternal joy, he put on flesh, suffered, bled, and died to secure your eternal happiness with him forever and ever and ever. The Bible calls it joy. That is exactly what God has secured for us in Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to do. Give up on lesser things. Quit being so easily satisfied. Don't fall for the American dream. Don't fall for the sales pitches. Follow Jesus. He's so, he's so committed to your eternal happiness, your eternal joy. He bled and died to secure it for you and for me under the umbrella the power of jesus his life death and resurrection all the things that happen to us can be gathered up and used for that character formation that is our first steps into sharing the eternal joy with god because character trumps stuff for the good life every single time and every trial is raw material for character formation in the hands of jesus character trumps stuff for the good life every single time and every trial is raw material for character formation, to make us the men and women God designed for us to be when we surrender it, hand it over to Jesus. I remember a uh, small group conversation a couple years ago where we were talking about this whole idea of trials and challenges we'd faced. And, uh, and one guy talked about his, uh, his uh, one trial he experienced where he, he found and discovered an unethical practice at his workplace and he reported it to his boss and he got fired for reporting unethical work practice, right? So his, his wildly important take home from that story was no good deed goes unpunished, right? That's the wildly important take home from that experience. Now, I think, I think James would have some things to say about this. I think, first off, James hates injustice. As we get into James, he's going to talk about people who have wealth, who are managers or bosses. So if, if you have, uh, most of us are on the top, you know, 5% of global income. So we're all going to be the rich people in James. And then a number of us are in places where we supervise people, manage people. Just buckle up as we read James, okay? Strap in. So James hates injustice. He doesn't want people who are wealthy or who have authority or power to exploit people, right? So James would be upset about that. But secondly, I think what James would say is this. Because character trumps anything for happiness, I think that what James would say is doing the right thing produces a certain type of character to you, character in you, regardless of what happens. Who you're becoming, if you report an unethical practice at your workplace, is better than who you're becoming if you don't report an unethical practice in your workplace. So either way, you're becoming something, right? You spot an unethical practice. If you duck, you know who you're becoming? The kind of person who ducks. Hides. Turns a blind eye. Pretends not to see. You, like, that's the kind of person you start to become if you don't report the unethical practice. If you do report the unethical practice, you know who you're becoming. Regardless of what happens, regardless of the consequences, you're becoming the kind of person who uses words to speak truth, iron out wrinkles, step into a broken world and make it more beautiful, less broken. You're using words like the same way that God did. God spoke and creation happened. You get to use your words to create beauty out of the chaos. And if you don't do that, if you abdicate that, you're becoming a certain type of people. Don't fool yourself. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter what happens to you and your job. If you're ducking something, you're becoming a person who ducks. And if you speak, you're becoming the kind of person who's courageous. 
strong, wise. My friends, so whether you get rewarded or punished for doing the right thing is secondary to who you're becoming as you're doing the right thing. Are you becoming the kind of person who's mature, complete, perseveres, lacking nothing? And if that becomes our habit, if we become the kind of people who are doing the right thing as best we possibly can, we habituate that rightness into our hearts, into our practices, and that makes us into a certain type of person. Now, the only way, there's a way this can go wrong. There's a way this can go sideways, right? And here's the dead end. Here's the dead end path. And I visited this dead end path. You've probably visited this dead end path as well. The dead end path looks like this. You do the right thing, you experience trials, and you result in bitterness and resentment, right? I did the right thing. I didn't get rewarded. And so I'm bitter at my boss who fired me, or I'm upset or angry at the situation or at this person. Do the right thing, get bitter and resentful. Here's the problem with that, my friends. The grace of God cannot transform a heart that's trapped in bitterness. Just can't. Bitterness is like Teflon for the grace of God. It just slides right off. If this is you, if you got some story in your life, and most of us have this story in our lives, did the right thing, we were doing the right thing, maybe not something specific, some trial came as a result, and you became resentful, self-righteous, bitter, angry at a person, at a group of people, at a company, at a hospital, at a whatever group of people you're thinking of, we have these experiences in our lives, right? Where we do the right thing, we're doing the right thing, some group of people turn on us, and we become angry, resentful, and self-righteous. And when we, when we hang on to that, when we hang on to that, we've lost the plot. We've lost the work that, G, that, that James says God wants to do in our hearts and our lives to make us the kind of people who are mature and complete, not lacking anything. My friends, any of you there today? Any of you sort of stuck in the dead end of bitterness and resentment after having done the right thing and there's someone that comes to mind or good people come to mind and you just feel that vitriol in your heart? Glad you're here this morning. I'm gonna give you a prayer exercise as a part of our wildly important take-homes to help us to kind of release some of that and begin to move down the path that James wants us to walk down as people of character. I was thinking about this all week long, about people in our community who've walked through trials and for whom that's been somehow a positive experience or somehow God's used it in positive ways. And a group of people came to mind right away. And that is, uh, in my time here, we've got a group of women who've lost their husbands. Some, many of them suddenly, kind of out of the blue, they've been widowed, car accidents, so horrible, heartbreaking situations. Some of them uh, with, uh, some of them after long sickness or illness. Uh, some of them had kids at home, some very young kids at home. I've been privileged to be there in some really dark, hard moments where it felt like God was a million miles away. And I've also been privileged to walk alongside many of them as they continue to persevere one day at a time. And as they've persevered through that trial, they've been able to bear witness to how God has met them, even in the midst of some of their darkest, hardest days. So about a year ago, I thought it might be a good thing to bring these women together. They've all experienced something very unique, very hard. And I thought I'd bring them together and just see what God did with it. And so they came up with a name for themselves. Ready for their name? Wow. And, and WOW stands for Women of Wisdom. That's their name. I love it. It's so great. And they get together sporadically and just sort of comfort each other, share life together. And I asked Valinda Brock uh, to lead it. Valinda's husband, Terry, passed away uh, two years ago last week. It's the second anniversary of his passing. And, uh, and Valinda and Terry were, were married 52 years before she lost Terry a couple years ago. This past week's been a hard week for Valinda. But I emailed her 
in, in the middle of the week and just said, hey, how, would you, how do you think about James 1? Given the two years you've been through and how hard it's been to lose Terry, your soulmate, for so long, how do you think about James 1 in the midst of all this? And she graciously kind of emailed me some thoughts and responses. I'm going to share with you some of what she wrote because it's so moving. I thought it was so compelling. Such a great picture of what it means to experience trials, know the pain of trials, but trust in God's promises even more. Watch how Valinda trusts in God's promises to frame her trials and difficulty. Just listen to the hard-earned wisdom of someone who's walked this path for two years and experienced the fruitfulness of God's faithfulness even in the midst of the heartbreak and difficulty. Here's what Valinda wrote. When you're in the midst of trials, losing your mate being a huge one, it's almost impossible, even counterintuitive, to see the good in it. It never occurs to you that trials can produce wisdom, but they can and do, hence the name Women of Wisdom from James 1. God held on to me. I just trusted him and leaned into the truth that his plan is always for not only my best, but it's best for everyone whose life I touch. As his disciple, my responsibility and choice is to trust in his goodness and his promises. Faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. I've been and still am given countless opportunities to exercise that muscle. Few things will do that like the death of a loved one, serious health issues, etc. But I have a choice. Lean into his truth versus giving into feelings which are immediate, not eternal, and mercurial. Hard-earned, wise words from a woman who's been walking through the thick of grief. Can we celebrate her faithfulness and say thanks, Belinda, for sharing that? Thank you so much, Belinda. Thank you. A few, a few questions for you and a few prompts for today's wildly important take home. First one is this. If character is core for the good life, how do you prize character formation above other things? Because, listen, very few other streams in our culture are going to tell you that character formation is the heart of happiness, the heart of contentment, the heart of the good life. How do you prize character formation above stuff, above money, above acquisition, uh, above experiences, above travel? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if the most important thing in your life is not your bucket list to make sure you see everything? What if the most important thing in your life is who you're becoming? How do you prioritize, prize, elevate character formation Love God, love neighbor, become the kind of person who loves God and loves your neighbor. That's, that's the work of the spiritual life. How do you begin to prize, prioritize? Because here's the deal. You and I were, were born onto a moving walkway of the American dream, right? We're born as a moving walkway. Pursuit of happiness, minimize and avoid trials. That's, like, that's the game. The only way that you don't fall into that is if you step off the moving walkway and walk into the Jesus way. So this is the kind of thing that you need to kind of come back to on the regular, right? Even if you've been a Jesus follower for a long time, what does it mean for you to prize and prioritize character formation as more important than a whole bunch of other things that everything you're going to see on TV this afternoon is going to tell you is more important? How do you, how do you kind of form, how do you, how do you prioritize, how do you cultivate that kind of character? Because that's going to shape how you're going to relate to your trials, how you think about trials. Second, second prompt, I want to invite you to spend some summer this week, spend some, spend some time this summer Building a life around God's promises and go promise hunting. This is so important for an actually integrated faith that I want to kind of pop it up again. Often the difference between someone who just comes to church on Sunday mornings and someone who actually lives out faith is how much you know God's promises and how built is your life around God's promises. The integration of God's promises in Scripture into your everyday life is, is what I've seen to be the difference between some people who just go through the motions of Christianity and faith and people who actually integrate it in real life. And in real time, that was the difference it made in Valinda's life as she's walked through these last two years that have been so incredibly difficult. Trusting, trusting, trusting in God's 
promises. I want to invite you, if you're not fluent in God's promises, to build, to come to the end of the summer with a whole stack of God's promises and then find some favorites and memorize them and recite them and hold on to them. Because when trials come, no one gets a pass on those. The promises of God might be the thing that just gets you through. Third thing, if you're in trials right now, how can you consider it pure joy? How do you take James up on his invitation to consider James's call to joy? What does it look like for you to believe God's promises, to walk in that trust that'll, that'll develop perseverance and maturity in you? The trials themselves aren't good. What God does with trials, that's a miracle. I want to invite you to bring all of God's resources into your trials. Scripture's promises, prayer, worship, community, people praying for you, walking alongside you. I want to invite you. Those are the pieces. Those are the, those are, that's the recipe, for lack of a better word, to, to, to walk through a series of trials in such a way that it's fruitful for you and for the people around you. Finally, this is an important one because almost all of us are carrying some of this. I want to deal with resentments. I'm going to give you a three-part prayer. Forgive, bless, release. Can you say that with me? Forgive, bless, release. One more time. Forgive, bless, release. One more time. Forgive, bless, release. I want to invite you to do the hard process, forgiving, blessing, releasing. Because for some of you, this message is coming like a year too late, or five years too late, or a decade too late, or six decades too late. For some of you, you feel that buildup of resentment in your heart. You've carried this along for a, around for a long, long time. There are significant trials in your rearview mirror, and you still carry, along, carry with you the resentment, the bitterness, the self-righteousness that comes through that experience. So here's the thing. I want to invite you into that process to forgive, bless, release. And for some of you, you need to do this like 100 times today, and then 100 times for the next six weeks, and then maybe 100 times for the next six months, next five years. But you're going to forgive, bless, release. Okay, so first off, you're going to forgive. Right now, this is, this is really, this is like, it's not a, not a soft start, right, to the whole process. Forgive, but here's what I want you, here's, here's the prayer. The prayer is, God, I want to forgive this person, or I want to want to forgive this person, right? I want to want to want to want to want to. Stack as many wants as you want to. I want to 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 forgive this person. I've got good news for you and bad news for you. Jesus has already forgiven them. You can either cooperate with that or resist it. But when the scriptures say that Jesus takes away the sins of the entire world, that means he's taken away the sins of the entire world. If you're a Christian, Christ in you has already forgiven the person who sinned against you. So you don't have to drum up forgiveness or generate forgiveness. You just have to surrender to forgiveness. Lord Jesus... I actually don't want to forgive this person yet, but you already have. And so I'm willing to surrender to how you've already forgiven that person. And help me to like that at some point down the road. That's a good prayer. Place to start anyway. Forgive. Bless. Bless just means I want good for them, some way, shape, or form. Now, blessing and wanting their good might mean that they have to change a whole lot. God, I want to bless them to be less selfish. I want to bless them to be less of a jerk. You know, you might, you might you know, yeah. like, I would look, you know, like, what a great thing. Wouldn't it be a great thing if the, if the people, like, the person, the people, the company, the hospital that did you wrong, wouldn't it be great if they were actually loving God, loving their neighbor, becoming people that God made them to be? That's what you want for them. I want to bless them. I want them to become the man or woman God designed for them to be. I want that company to be the, a, a company that honors you, honors your, honors your customers, takes care of their employees. God, I want to bless them to become the people or the organizations that you made them to be. And then I want to finally release, i.e., this person has been lodged in my soul and it's blocking me hearing the Holy Spirit. It's blocking me becoming who you want me to be. 
I don't want that person to have any more real estate in my heart anymore. I'm going to release them into your hands. I'm going to release them. I'm going to release them. I'm going to release them. 30 seconds later, I'm having a conversation in my head against with them, uh, with them again. I'm going to release them again, release them again, release them again. Forgive, bless, release. That's the journey to getting out of the dead end of a hardened heart that's hung up in resentment and self-righteousness. That's the journey to getting to becoming a person that can actually enter into trials and consider them pure joy and trust that God take up such, takes up those trials and can use them for our good, that we might become people of perseverance and character, mature, complete, not lacking anything. But here, the question is, where does the power come from? How do we get there? Well, we get there for the meal we're going to celebrate here today as we celebrate communion. It's uh, five Sunday month. Pre-COVID, we were experimenting with doing additional communions on five Sunday months. And so today we're going to do an extra communion and see if we can... Keep pulling this off because it's a great opportunity. And my friends, here's the deal. When all of us were far from God, when all of us were living lives of disintegration, when people kind of far from God, cut off from God, God so loved the world. He put on flesh, laid down his life for you and for me to secure your eternal joy, my eternal joy, your eternal happiness, my eternal happiness. Don't settle for temporary happiness in the American dream. Fight to come to Jesus, who has fought for you to know God's eternal love. On the, night God, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he did what he's always doing. He took ordinary things, made them extraordinary. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this, this cup's my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. His friends had no clue what he was talking about, what was going on, but the night unfolds like a nightmare. Betrayed by one of his closest friends, run through a mock trial, crucified. On a cross, friends all scattered in a fog of fear, shame, anxiety, shock. On the third day, God reaches into the tomb just like he promised Jesus he would. God the Father pulls him out of the grave so that your sin and my sin, your death and my death, and the death of all those that we love might not have the last word over any of us. Grace does. Joy does. Forgiveness does. And so we come to this meal, to this table, resources for that forgiveness, power to turn around and forgive those who've hurt, against, who've hurt us, confidence that all the things that come against us, that war against us, can be used for our character formation, for our good. And so we come and celebrate at these tables here together. We're going to invite you to move to the stations here in just a minute. There are four stations, two up front here, one back middle and one back there along the, uh, the wall in the back. We're going to invite you to go to the stations, just get the, uh, the, the wafer and the cup. Uh, on the table, I mean on the uh, napkin is a gluten-free wafer for those of you who, uh, who need a gluten-free option. The other ones are gluten-full, I guess. Gluten, extra gluten added just to celebrate, rub it in. I don't know, what, but yes, yeah, so that's regular. We'll have table hosts there if you, need, if you have any questions. Uh, I want to invite you to come to these tables. Uh, just get the, get the elements, bring them back to your seat, and I just want to invite you to sit with it for just a bit. Here's the power to help you forgive those who have hurt, against, who hurt you. Here's the promise that your trials must work for your good. Jesus' trials, including his mock trial, including his death, served him in the hands of God the Father. That's the path we're walking in. Jesus makes promises. Everything that comes against you must work for your good if you're surrendered to the hands of the Father. That's what happened with Jesus. It happens with us too. Now, if you're here this morning, you're struggling. Anything, 
It's hard. Life's hard. You're bitter. You're angry at something, someone, or you're just feeling cut off, exhausted, overwhelmed. Uh, as we move to communion, there's going to be a prayer team available to you just through those curtains. The prayer team would be glad to pray for you and with you. Anything you want us, Carol and the rest of the team, to go over there. I would love to invite you to go get prayer. As, the, as everyone's moving, just go get prayer. Go get prayer. They're not going to judge you. They're just going to listen to you, come alongside you. These are the resources available to help those trials to bear good fruit in your life. At home, I invite you to go get whatever elements you got around, some juice and, and a cup and a wafer and and then hold on to it and we'll eat and drink together. Let me pray for us as we move to a time of taking communion elements, getting prayer, and entering into the grace and mercy of God. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for forgiveness for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the entire world. And Lord, we want to receive that. We want to walk in that. We want to move in that. Lord, some of us are tired. We're struggling. We're hurting. But these elements help us, reassure us of your great love. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have now to gather on this meal. We ask that you would teach us what it means, help us to sit in it, to receive it, soften our hearts, and bring us into your joy. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen, amen, amen.